Are you sold some utopian dream about UX design? About how great the pay is and how everyone everywhere at every company understands the value of good UX design? Did you expect everyone to trust your opinion because you're the UX designer? I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, y'all, but the real world isn't exactly like what you learn in school. You're likely picking up where someone else left off. You aren't always able to do the things you think you should be doing. Start to finish, if there even is a finish, is often not a linear happy path. So stick around and we'll break it down. What's up, UX fam? How's your mom and them? Welcome to another episode of Beyond UX Design. I'm Jeremy. If you're new here, welcome to the show. I am super stoked to have you. And if you haven't done it already, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are a regular here and you feel like you're getting something out of the show, then I would really appreciate you leaving a five-star review. Apple loves that stuff, and so do I. That'll help me out way more than you can imagine. And I want to welcome a new patron to the show today, Siri Kwan. Thank you so much for your support. I can't tell you how much it means to me, and it's always great to get some love from folks back home in Louisiana. So thank you so much. And as always, thanks so much to Chris for his continued support. And if you want to join Chris and Siri Kwan and help keep the show independent and ad-free, you can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. And if you do that, you'll get some sweet perks for your support. And of course, if you think the show is worth sharing, then I would love it if you told some friends. That'd be amazing. And for more information on how you can support the show and help more people find out about what we're doing, make sure to check out beyonduxdesign.com support. Were you under the impression software teams would sit around waiting for the UX team to complete their research, analyze every angle, and design pixel-perfect prototypes? Were you surprised when you found out you had a single sprint to deliver a fully baked feature, fully validated and ready to build? Were you confused when the engineers delivered that feature, but it didn't look anything like your wireframes? Were you surprised when the product team completely ignored your ideas in favor of their own idea? Well, welcome to the wonderful, often painful world of UX design. Here's the thing. The UX design profession is often wildly different from how you were taught to do this job in school or in a boot camp. And now I want to preface this by saying that not every program is created equal. You may have had instructors that warned you about this or tried to teach you in a way that helped prepare you for what the real world was actually like. But for every person out there that learned what the real world may actually be like, there are tons and tons of people who were taught a very linear, happy path to design. And when they landed their first job out of school, they were wildly surprised by how different that job really is. The first thing I want to stress is the lack of UX maturity and honestly, even just software maturity across many organizations or potential employees. So in school, we're often taught how to do our job, but what we are not taught is that very few people in the business world were taught anything about UX or even more broadly, how to plan, how to build and maintain great software. And this means that many companies will simply have absolutely no idea how to build software, let alone how to use UX teams to improve usability. So this leads to a lot of the problems that we're going to talk about today. And if you haven't yet, I would encourage you to go online, read through a bunch of different UX maturity models. There are a lot of them out there. Nielsen Norman Group has probably the most popular one. Uh, and the interesting thing about Nielsen Norman's UX maturity model is that they also do a survey every year. And what's really interesting, those results are pretty eye-opening and they should give you a good impression 
of how many software teams out there are operating at a relatively low state of UX maturity. So go check that out. This lack of UX maturity leads to one big problem. There are not a lot of teams that really understand how to use a UX team, which means titles are all over the place. Job descriptions are all over the place. Go and find three job openings right now for UX designer or on Indeed or or LinkedIn or something. And I'm willing to bet that you find three wildly different lists of responsibilities, requirements, expectations, etc. All for the same exact job title. So what this means is that in practice, you might end up on a team that expects you as UX designer to be more of a full stack designer or generalist. Or you may end up on a team that has visual designers and your job is to do more of that discovery, mapping, maybe low fidelity wires. And not only are job expectations wildly different across organizations, but access to users will vary and your ability to do the research might be drastically different across teams. How you do research, if you're even able to do research at all, can be completely different. The tools that you use, all these things, very different. So some companies rely on user and data-driven roadmaps, while others really just rely on stakeholders or executive-driven ideas, ignoring the users completely. So you may get that coveted seat at the table, but then you may get requirements handed down from upon high not to be questioned or changed. And when it comes to how others interact with you as a UX designer, there are tons of different ways that this can play out. You may end up on a team that finds collaboration very important. Then you may find yourself on a team where you're expected to spec out every piece of your design perfectly, throw the design over the fence, and pray that it looks even remotely like what you designed. So when it comes to UX maturity, this can greatly impact what you will be doing, how you will be doing it, and who you'll be doing it with. So if you run into this issue on your team, see how much you can influence your team to follow a process that might work. But remember, focus on the people over the process. Don't try to force processes that don't or cannot work. Be flexible and try to work with what you have. So you usually won't start at the start. And in school, we're often taught about these various design methods and frameworks like the double diamond, or that every team practices design thinking, or that every project will start off with a design sprint and a thousand sticky notes on the wall. But usually, in the real world, you're picking up where somebody else left off. You may be taking over from somebody who just left the company or quit or moved. Maybe they were promoted and the team's looking for a backfill, or maybe the team is growing and they need an additional designer. Either way, very rarely will you be following that double diamond method every time or whatever method you were taught from the beginning to the end. And often in the real world, software projects take a very, very, very long time to implement, sometimes years, depending on the initiative. Now, while I definitely don't agree with that waterfall approach to building software, unfortunately, there are teams out there that are still doing this. So you have to be aware of it. And more often than not, you're starting off with desk research. You're going to go through the shared drive. You're looking through all the old notes you're watching or you're listening to old recordings of interviews or usability studies. You might be reviewing journey maps or service blueprints, process maps, maybe demos of old features. You're deciphering someone else's design files. This is why labeling all your layers of Figma is important. And you're trying to figure out how components were built. All that before you ever talk to a single user. So as UX designers, we're usually ending up somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle of feature development. So don't expect to start off day one doing design sprints or user interviews. Be prepared to find out everything that you can on your own and make sure you ask questions to fill in those knowledge gaps. So you won't be doing yourself or your team any favors if you start designing without the proper context. 
Next, know that you will get pushback. (laughs) In school, we're often sold this rosy picture that designers know best and that there's a right and proper way to design software. If you follow that linear process, we're told, out comes great software at the end. Unfortunately, lots of programs fail to tell you that a good bit of our time will be spent convincing everyone else on the team to follow the various suggestions that we have. For instance, stakeholders will bring a lot of emotion into design reviews. They may have a strong opinion, and that opinion might be biased. And you know that it's wrong, and that you have a better solution or idea. Part of your job will be to convince the right people that this is the best approach. So you have to back up your designs with objective proof. You'll have to show the value in your decision and back it up with data to prove it. Now, most of the time, our team won't just accept everything we say at face value, and nor should they. Our job is to bring insights to our team to improve the user's experiences. We need to be aware of biases and how they can affect the team's decision-making. So one of the books that I recommend to early designers often over any other is Tom Grieber's Articulating Design Decisions. This book is invaluable in providing tactics on how to sell our ideas to our larger team. And if you haven't read it, this book should be on the top of your list, please. Next, no seat at the table. Now, unfortunately, we're often the last to know about important decisions our teams make. We're often left out of the loop when it comes to roadmap planning or sometimes even discovery in general. So the lower the UX maturity of your organization, the more of a problem this will be. But often, you will find that you're just handed a list of requirements without understanding the larger context. You'll find out that decisions were made that completely change your plans. Your team may not come to you with questions or ideas. You'll just be handed a list of things to do and expected to deliver on time. As the industry becomes more mature and teams start to see the value in UX, this will happen less and less, but there are still a lot of companies out there where the UX team is just seen as pixel pushers and order takers. And no one from the UX team is given a seat at the table. And part of the issue here is that when we're taught in school about collaboration, we're often taught through collaborating with other designers. And that is definitely important. You certainly need to learn how to collaborate with other designers. But what we're very rarely taught is collaborating with non-designers. And in this case, we aren't taught how to collaborate with stakeholders or important decision makers. Understanding how to work with them might be one of the biggest things that we aren't taught in school, but is the most critical. Because if you can't convince this important group, you'll end up being an order taker your entire career. And if you run into this, it's important to focus on delivering value, to build trust. And once you start to deliver and build trust within your team, hopefully you can start to see that you're being included more and more in those important meetings. This is pretty much never mentioned as a thing schools are teaching. And if you are learning this in school, that course deserves a special shout out. So please let me know because I want to give them some credit. Next is difficult engineers or product teams. And this problem is somewhat related to the previous issue where you don't have a seat at the table or you're getting pushback, but with engineers and product teams instead of stakeholders. And again, in school, it's just accepted that there is a proper approach to building software, that everyone accepts the recommendations and the designs that we've spent time working on. And when we're taught to collaborate, it's with those other designers on the design, but rarely are we taught how to collaborate with the people who will be responsible for getting these designs actually built and pushed to production. I often see these amazing animations and these really cool transition effects that people design in something like Figma. And I think they're really cool. And I love that they can do this. But I can't help but think, who is building this? How are they going to build this? 
Will this ever actually make it to production? And the answer, unfortunately, is often no, at least not without a lot of headaches. And this is a symptom of designers not learning to work with engineers. The reality is that everyone on the team has their own priorities. Product teams are focused on maybe planning, budgets, or resources, or launching, or releasing, maybe communications. The engineering team's focused on sprint planning, user stories, acceptance criteria, scrum ceremonies, code review, fixing bugs, releasing on time, metrics, whatever, whatever they're gauged on, right? All that stuff. And no one is going to share the same priorities as the UX team. It isn't that product teams or engineers hate UX. They just don't share our priorities because it's not their job. So remember that if we want them to share in our priorities, we need to figure out how to get them there. Don't assume malintent. Build relationships with your team. Tell compelling stories when you talk about the solutions. Collaborate. Do not work in a silo. Break down the walls. Don't throw your designs over the fence and expect the team to build pixel perfection. And please, 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 please don't fall into that othering trap where it's us versus them. All right, next one is a big one. Underfunded or non-existent research. In school projects, research is always a major step in the project plan. Finding users, performing interviews, maybe conducting surveys, maybe card sorting exercises, multiple feedback loops during that design process, maybe usability studies with high fidelity prototypes, the works, right? This happens way more often than anyone likes to admit, but unfortunately, I think you will find that in the real world, research is often an afterthought. Lots of stakeholders think that they know what the users want, and so they'll question the need for research. I have seen this so many times. Lots of product managers will just accept the word of the stakeholders. They won't push back for one reason or another. The list of requirements is sent to you as if it's gospel and you're just expected to design something wonderful without any kind of input from users. And if you're lucky, you'll find a team that has a researcher on staff, but a lot of the times you'll find teams with just a bunch of generalists without any solid understanding of research techniques and methods. They might have a very high level understanding, but they might not really get into the weeds. So you may find that your team thinks they don't have time for research. They want to move fast, and that's all well and good if they set aside time for validation and iterating later, but even this is often not done. They'd rather move on to building the next thing, the next new feature, over improving what is already in production. And this one is really tricky for young designers, especially designers fresh out of school who might not have the experience to know what is an acceptable risk when it comes to research and what is not. So that design intuition is really important here, but a lot of young designers haven't built that up yet. So my first bit of advice here is to learn as much about how to conduct proper research as you can from trusted sources. And if you don't have a researcher on staff, there are tons of books to help you understand methods and techniques for unbiased research. There are people online like Debbie Levitt, Dr. Nick Fine, folks like that who are really good and you can learn quite a bit from them. So if it makes sense for the feature that you're working on, try to do some guerrilla research maybe interview friends that might fit in some of your target users or match your personas in some way. It might not be perfect, but it's often better than nothing. So try to focus on heuristics and understand some of the principles and apply them regardless of if you get the opportunity for research. So for example, you know that humans will want to see the system status or that users will always want a path forward. You don't need to wait for users to tell you this in a usability study. Apply your heuristic principles before you even start. And lastly, try to keep track of what your hypothesis is and see if you can track metrics later to prove your point after the fact. So if nothing else, this might prove that research would have helped to improve some process or would have saved some amount of money so that you could try to push to do it the next time. For instance, 
you may be able to say something like, you know, if we skip the research and we're wrong, X might happen, which might lead to a Y increase in turnaround time or something. And if that does happen, perhaps you can prove the opportunity cost of not doing the research. So this might help to sell the idea the next time some stakeholder wants to skip the research. Honestly, sometimes your team has to fail and come to that realization that there is a better way to do things on their own. It doesn't matter how much you tell them, they'll have to experience the pain for themselves. All right, next is rush designs. And in school, the right and proper, quote unquote, right and proper path to great software says that the UX team should have time to get all their ducks in a row before handing the designs over to the software team to build. But the reality is that we are often given a sprint or a few weeks to turn around designs. This is often another reason why research is skipped, because we just don't have the time, simply enough time to do it all. Now, this problem often comes up because of a lack of having that quote-unquote seat at the table, right? No one ever asks the design team how long something should take, so they just assume that we can do it in whatever amount of time that they came up with. And this is another one that can be difficult for young designers to handle. You obviously want to impress your team. And so in order to get those designs in on time, you bust your ass. You might stay up late. And you're most likely skipping important steps like research or validation. And this is obviously nothing like how your school projects tend to go, right? One way to handle this is to try to set realistic expectations. So for example, if you're being asked to deliver X in two weeks, it's important to speak up early and often. Do not wait until the day before something is due to let your team know that it isn't going to be ready. Instead, communicate what can actually be completed in that amount of time. Remember that a lot of these issues boil down to a lack of trust. You'll have a very hard time building trust if your team expects you to do something by a certain date because you didn't speak up and let them know that it wasn't possible. So instead, if you're consistent in what you say you will deliver and you delivered what you said you would when you said you would have done it, you're showing that they can trust you. This problem is a lot harder to deal with if your manager or your team lead isn't backing you up. And in these scenarios, there might not be a whole lot that you can do other than just be as open and honest as you can be about what you can deliver and when, but it just might not actually work. I would also suggest utilizing your one-on-ones to make sure that people are aware of unrealistic deadlines. And remember, one-on-ones aren't just for you and your boss. It could be for you, stakeholders, product managers, engineers, whoever you work with on a regular basis. Have a one-on-one. Make sure you're talking about these things as often as possible. Next, no time for validation. Almost every designer today is familiar with the double diamond. I've heard from a lot of students who were taught this as if this is the gold standard every product team follows to build software. And I'll be honest, I haven't ever seen this used in any kind of real world scenario where I work personally. And unless you're working at a consultancy that's hired by a company to do exactly this thing, the chances of following this process exactly is pretty rare, at least from my vantage point. So the whole point of, of the double diamond is to come up with some idea, go off, iterate, diverge, come back to review, converge again, go off and validate, diverge, and then come back together to refine the final idea that we want to proceed with, right? Converge again, right? So I'm sorry, y'all. That method is pretty rare. It doesn't always happen, at least not exactly like that. There's obviously a lot of going off, converging, or diverging, whatever, but it's, it's never exactly like it is in the double diamond. So similar to not having enough time to design the proper solution or do the proper research, our teams might rush 
from feature to feature without spending the time to properly vet and validate our solutions. And this validation, whether it's before engineering starts building or validating after something is pushed to production, it is pretty rare, unfortunately. And I've seen some products that don't even take analytics into account. So if they did ever want to go back and validate using quantitative metrics, they wouldn't even have any way to do it, even if they wanted to. So you may find that your team completely skips thinking about KPIs or OKRs in favor of just pushing forward as fast as they can in the real world. So this next one, we need to be able to thrive in a VUCA environment. So I want to introduce a concept that I learned uh, years after I landed my first job. And I was fortunate enough to get to go to some corporate leadership training where they introduced this idea of VUCA, V-U-C-A. Now, often in business, we need to work and really thrive in what we might call a VUCA environment. So VUCA is an acronym, and it stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and ambiguous. So this concept in the class that I took was was really geared towards business leaders, but in reality, this is something that UX designers really need to understand. So we can do a full episode on this concept, and and I think I'm going to do that at some point soon, maybe even next episode. But for now, let's just touch on this uh, briefly. So first, volatile. In the real world, there can be a lot of changes in our environment that are completely outside of our direct control. The length of time to solve a given problem can fluctuate. Maybe we think that we have answers and suddenly we don't, they're wrong, we don't have them. Volatility is exactly what it sounds like. Things can change without warning, which might leave us unprepared. And it might not be overly complicated, but the change can keep us from knowing what the right decision is. So an example might be, you know, a wishy-washy stakeholder, a manager who changes their mind often. And we prepare for one scenario and then the rug's pulled out from under us at the last minute and what we thought is no longer true. In an uncertain environment, the path forward is just not clear. So there are a lot of potential scenarios, but we have no idea which one will actually play out. So an example might be that you know some big announcement from a government watchdog is coming, but you have no idea what direction that watchdog will decide to go. Each scenario can impact your company or your team or your decision in a different way, which could ultimately change the direction that your product decides to go. In a complex environment, there are lots of moving parts. It might not be hard to digest, you know, small chunks, but when you try to put them all together, it could get really overwhelming to try to understand it all. So for example, systems might be dependent on other things, or maybe there are lots of stakeholders who all have to be brought into a conversation. The bigger your organization is, the harder it is to keep track of these things. And generally, complexity comes from systems, or the business. In an ambiguous environment, there are just lots of unknowns, or maybe there aren't any historical precedents to reference, perhaps. There might be a lot of unknown unknowns, things we don't even know that we don't know. An example of this might be a lack of access to users. We aren't sure what pieces of our product are valuable to them, Uh, or you aren't sure what exactly your next roadmap should look like because you just don't know what a user actually wants. So again, We can talk more in detail about these for sure, but it's important to understand some relatively simple ways to navigate these types of scenarios at work. So in a volatile environment, our challenge is constant change. So make sure that you devote some time to hedge your bets. Maybe you don't spend all of your time creating new prototypes, but at least be prepared for contingencies or be prepared to talk about different ideas or concepts in a meeting. 
And every scenario can be different, but just keep reminding yourself that the change is coming and just be ready for the change. In an uncertain environment, our main challenge is a lack of foresight. So do everything that you can to understand as much as possible to understand what may happen. Now, remember that networking that we talked about in a previous episode. This could be a great way to keep your ear to the ground to find out what other teams are doing. And this can eliminate some of that uncertainty. Or maybe you stay up to date with industry journals about what's happening outside of your company. Just learn as much as you can about whatever it is that you need to know to be successful. And this will help you pivot when it comes time to change. In a complex environment, our challenge is that it's hard to digest it all. So try breaking up problems into smaller, more digestible chunks. Start at the start of the problem. Don't try to start in the middle. If you're getting confused, start at the start. Document everything. And don't be afraid to ask for help if something feels overwhelming. In an ambiguous environment, our challenge is our lack of understanding of certain aspects of the problem. So in this case, you want to experiment. Keep track of your analytics and use data to your advantage so that you can make the best possible decision that you can make at that moment. So I think you'll find one or all of these scenarios at any job that you end up landing. So applying some of these tactics can save you and your team a lot of headaches down the road. So the last thing I want to talk about is this idea that in, you know, in your school or boot camp, the projects always take, you know, some set amount of time, a short amount of time, six months, three months, something like that. Now, I don't think that schools or boot camps teach this explicitly, that a project will take six months. And I think this is often implied or maybe just misinterpreted by students because of how the projects are assigned. Now, obviously, in school, you can't spend a year or two working on a project, right? You need to get it over so that you can learn the next thing. Now, generally speaking, and of course, this isn't the same with every team, but these projects often take a very long time to go from beginning to end. And to be honest, there is very rarely an actual end. So these features can live on. They evolve until the company shuts down or until something else happens. But there is usually no point where a team says, okay, this is done. We're never updating this piece of software again. Now, of course, this could be the case for an agency where, you know, there is a specific scope and a budget and time to do X number of things and Y amount of time. But if you're at a software company that builds its own tools or sells its own products to consumers or, you know, another business, the application, it generally just evolves and evolves and evolves over time, almost indefinitely. So what does this mean to a junior designer who only has experience from school or a boot camp? Well, to me, it means that you have a lot of time to get it right. So I think often people get out of school and they get a job on a team and expect to do everything right the first time. They expect all these things to just go right. They expect things to be perfect. They expect everybody to agree or to listen to them. And sometimes they will, for sure, obviously, but a lot of times they won't. And that's okay because we have the time. None of this needs to happen overnight. The change that we want to see doesn't need to happen overnight. It doesn't even need to happen in six months. If it happened within a year, I would be excited. This job is often a marathon. It's not a sprint. So lots of things will be wrong. You'll want to fix them all. And that's great. But remember that these things take time to fix. Building relationships, it takes time. Building trust takes time. Building authority takes time. So it's critical that as a junior designer that you are pragmatic. You know what you can and cannot achieve. So focus on the important things. Chip away at it slowly over time and eventually, I promise, you will have a breakthrough and you'll get what you want. 
You may not get everything that you want exactly how you wanted it, but if you keep at it, I promise you will eventually get there. Now, lastly, before I get out of here, I just want to be clear. Everything that I've talked about today, it's not meant to dissuade you from keeping at it or to continue looking for your first UX job. I love what I do, and I want to see more passionate people joining the UX community. Just know that it might not be exactly like what you expected when you land your first gig. So like I said, keep at it, and you'll see that change over time. Don't give up, and you'll be glad that you stuck around, I promise. Well, all right, y'all, that's it for me for today. I hope I helped to give you some more insight into what it's like in the real world versus school or a boot camp. And for those of you who have landed a job already, what do you think? Was it different from what you expected? If you're still in school, do you think you're being adequately prepared for what the real world is like? Uh, what do your instructors have to say? Let me know what you think on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at hello at beyonduxdesign.com. You can also find me on Twitter at beyonduxpod and at jmillspaysbills. I'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you feel like you're getting something out of this show, I would really appreciate it if you left a five-star review. Not just five stars, but I'm talking a couple sentences too. That would be amazing. And if you know somebody who might find any of this stuff useful, please tell them about it. That'd be fantastic. And if you want to help keep the show independent and ad-free, check out those Patreon sponsor packages at beyonduxdesign.com support. You can join Chris and Siroquan and support the show for as little as $3 a month. And there are some sweet perks like that badass holographic Beyond UX Design sticker. And you can get a shout out on the show every week. There's even a package to meet with me for 30 minutes every month. So don't forget to sign up for the newsletter and check out all those past episodes at beyonduxdesign.com. I hope you keep coming back for more great UX tips from Beyond UX Design. And until next time, remember, you're more than a designer because there's so much more to UX and design. I'll see you around. Take care, y'all. 